Hey everyone, this is Nicholas. Thanks for listening again to the Prairie Farm Podcast. I wanted to give a quick disclaimer because there are a few bleeps over someone's name. And when that happens, just think prominent government official. We wanted to do this so that we could protect Bob and ourselves because we're not trying to get in trouble over a podcast about bison. Anyway, enjoy. In three, two, one. My name is Bob Jackson. I'm a buffalo farmer, former ranger. This is the Prairie Farm Podcast. Well, we are here in beautiful south, southern border, really, of Iowa right now. Uh, just pretty much straight south of uh, Nick's house. <laughs> <laughs> and yep. and a little south, little southwest of uh, the farm up uh, at Hoxie Native Seeds near Linville, and we're dealing with somebody today that is the other side of prairie. So we're all about the plants. You know, we grow the beautiful prairie flowers, the iconic prairie grasses, and the overlooked prairie sedges. Uh, Carol's one that taught me that people always group sedges and grasses together at the same time, but they really are not the same thing. They're 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 a different. Can you kind of explain that a little bit, Carol? The, the difference between a prairie sage or sedge and uh, prairie grass. Well, the difference between a sedge and a grass is the stem. The sedges are kind of a got like a triangle stem in them, and you really can't tell by looking at them other than if you take them and put them in your fingers and roll the stem between your fingers you can feel the the three sides of the triangle so that's what makes a sedge a wetland species grass over uh, the dryland prairie grasses yeah yeah so it's it, i always like to clarify that when i tell people we grow prairie grasses flowers and sedges and that's that's a huge part of prairie but uh even carol has told me this before prairie really to be to be what prairie really truly is you got to have the animals that live there as well they help they help maintain it um on our production fields where we're trying to grow single species um we have to use all sorts of other manipulations that kind of represent what the animals would have done so sometimes it might be a chemical burn down or uh, even using a fire or <laughs> using the hoe or shovel. <laughs> or do some tillage on the big blue stem yes. to destroy some of the the root bounding that uh, the plants want to uh, develop when they don't have other competition to other species in the soil to, uh, to keep them in check a little bit. So we have to use some heavy tillage to, to rip that up. Yeah, we have to. We basically have to simulate what these large grazers would have been doing to keep prairie healthy and and part of, you know, what that complete ecosystem was. But the guy on the other end of the table that I've been hearing about pretty much since I started at at Hoxie, so it's a great privilege to finally meet him, Mr. Bob Jackson, specializes in bison. But uh, we're going to get into that in a little, you know, a little bit later in the conversation. But maybe we kind of start with the history here. You're you're clearly somebody who's got a I guess you could say a natural mindset. You love the outdoors. 
um, even just in talking before we started the podcast, grew up around hunting and trapping and fishing. Can you kind of uh, just tell us, you know, a kind of a summary of your background growing up and your interest in the outdoors and natural places, Bob? Yeah, first of all, <clears throat> you're making my head swell up with all the <laughs> accolades. And uh, one thing I want to mention before I forget was sedges, um, Yellowstone bison in the wintertime where I worked, um, 90% of what they ate in the wintertime were sedges. Huh, uh, in the late fall when I'd be with my horses in the backcountry, um, they go to the sedges. In the summertime, you can pick at them out there in the sedge and they won't eat it at all. But sedges stay green. Uh, the accounts here in Iowa was thousands of thousands of acres in the floodplain. That was just pure sedge. Mm. And, of course, that's where all the buffalo families would spend their winters is mostly on the stream bottoms on all these floodplains, and they're eating the sedge. So, you don't know, if you guys are you know, incorporating prairie with grazers, whether it's cattle or buffalo— um, any of the floodplains are great places to start the sedge again. And once you get the sedge in, like we have down here in the South Sheraton River Valley down below us here, uh, the sedges, even if it's been row cropped, they'll start coming in from the sides. Mm. And so they will come in. And so that is something that most people don't think of. They try to do grazing where they do stocking some of the grass here mm-hmm. for their cattle. Um, but they'd get a lot better if they got floodplains, you know, on the stream beds, any of that. If they went to the high-protein sedge for wintertime, yeah, they would uh, – there'd be a lot better way to do it, yeah. But otherwise, I'm – my background is I grew up on a farm in north-central Iowa. Um, in fact, it was called Elkhorn Township because uh, there were so many elk there originally, I guess. Oh, but, that's uh, fascinating. Yeah. Long ago enough, you don't remember any elk being there, though, when you were a kid. Well, no, of course not. I think the last elk were shot up in northern Iowa, I think in 1867 or 1870s. My something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I've yeah. heard, too. I think it was, uh, the buffalo, the last one was 1840s or 50s, something like that. Again, in northwest Iowa, because that was the last place that was settled you know, by the white people, you could say. So, um, yeah, I grew up there in... Now, Probably because I want to interrupt you here yeah, for a second, ahead. Bob, because you you uh, gave us a correction when we got here based on something that I think I've said it probably multiple times on podcasts, and uh, it, it's it's front it's a it's a researched point. It's something I read in a book, but you you've uh, as a buffalo expert said it's not really quite the full picture of the story, which is when settlers got here, they it appeared that. Iowa wasn't home to as many buffalo as what would have historically been accurate, right? Uh, yes. Um, as we were saying before, it all depends on the human occupancy. If it's a really uh, good place for people to live year-round, uh, like a lot of the Indians did here in the eastern Midwest, um, then the first ones that they would try to, you know, eat was the buffalo. That's the one that gave them the most nutrients of all. And uh, they're a larger animal, so it could feed more people. And the buffalo are more of uh, protect each other. 
and into kind of like elephants do. And as compared to elk, elk flee. Mm. And buffalo will stand their ground. And you hear a lot about staying your ground and all the gun information or news that comes out now, especially in Florida. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so the buffalo had a harder time with people. If you get into west of the Missouri River, it was really hard for Indians to stay there in the wintertime. Very few places could they stay because it was just, uh, there wasn't that much environment that was good. So um, the Indians here, the historical ones that they have accounts for, uh, the Indians would come from west of the Missouri and hunt elk in Iowa, and then they would go across the Missouri going from Iowa into now in Nebraska, South Dakota to hunt the buffalo. Mm. Uh, and that's the historical accounts. But uh, buffalo at one time, they went all the way. Kentucky, all those areas in through there, down into Georgia. Um, a lot of your Western people think that you know, the plains is the home of the buffalo. Well, yeah, well, the buffalo, people think of them just eating grass. But a lot of times you get more into the, you know, the more moisture precipitation areas, 40 inches or more, and you have a lot more forbs. And the Indian, or the, the buffalo, they pretty much, uh, they would learn what you could eat from the forbs. And that's why you had buffalo in Georgia, Kentucky, all the way to the East Coast, because uh, they depended more on the forbs than they did on the grasses, and that was a learned behavior. Hmm. Wow! Yeah, that's that's fascinating to hear that history. And um, I believe the buffalo is our or bison, how whatever the the right term is there, uh, is our nation's uh, mammal, right? It's our national mammal, I believe. Is yeah, there was a recruitment uh, trying to get enough people to you know, put that as a national mammal, I think, not that many years ago. And so they designate a day, just like any other day, hmm. national, I don't know, could be National Kleenex Day, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> national, Nas bison. national Bison Day, drive 2,000 miles to your nearest bison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> used to be all over the country. Yeah, yeah. Right, so, right. Well, it's it's a uh, it's a fascinating story, and, and uh, it's – it, it's fitting, you know, it's such an iconic animal and it was spread throughout so much of our country. But yeah, I kind of cut you off on explaining uh, you're growing up. So you grew up in Elkhorn, Iowa. And uh, what, what kind of things were you doing that got you into the outdoors up in yeah. Elkhorn? Actually, we we're in Elkhorn Township, Webster County. And our place, fortunately for me, uh, was uh, right on, right above Prairie Creek. Uh, it's what goes into Dollar Park. And it was called Prairie Creek, uh, and that's all the maps had it. It was dredged out in the early 1900s. My grandfather, in fact, was the head surveyor for the dredging of a place that was about eight miles from there. There's a little town called Moorland, because that reminded people of the Moors of England. Hmm. And uh, it's a huge uh, swamp area. And so Prairie Creek came from that. And, of course, from our... We were at some of the only hills in northern Iowa, and so uh, the Indians would go along Prairie Creek in the summertime, and then they would go down Des Moines River and live, uh, you know, eight miles away to the east for the wintertime. But they traveled on both sides of that creek, and so there was a lot, a lot of Indian 
camps uh, you know, in our place and the neighbors mm. that we would go to when we were young after the plowing and and then uh, in the springtime before they put the crops in then you could find a lot of Indian artifacts so it was really neat with that uh, we started out fishing for little chubs in our creek um, I always hated it when one of the neighbors uh, he thought he would take it on himself and he blew up the beaver dam Mm. Uh, we had walleye, we had bass in there. Uh, There's a lot of neat fish that we would fish for. And uh, so we got back with him, at him. <laughs> One night we f- went up the creek a ways and a couple of our friends and myself and we had our bows and arrows and back then you could uh, shoot cherry bombs. So we'd light one of those things and have it on the end of an arrow and shoot it over his farmstead in the middle of the night. And, of course, the yard light would come on. Oh, no. But we never, never got caught. So you could say that was part of the start of the hunting. It was actually hunting the neighbors. Oh, no. Arrows at him, you know. So we had fun in the middle of the night. But, yeah, um, so probably because there's five kids, three of us boys, and so – it gets you out of the house. My dad also, he grew up fishing, hunting, trapping. Back in the 20s, I think mink uh, were worth 20 bucks, which would have been well mm. over 100 bucks now. So that was a major income that dad had, and so it carried on to us boys. Um, you know, they put us in the yearbook, you know, the great white hunters. And um, so, and of course, the great white hunter in Iowa, I mean, bobcats were gone, lions were gone, grizzly bears are gone. Most people don't realize there were grizzly bears in Iowa. Oh, really? But that was one of the first things to go when you had a lot of population of humans. Um, the Indians would go after grizzly bears when they were causing problems in their camps, and they'd have six warriors, and they may come back with four. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I had heard from the Lewis and Clark accounts that they – they uh when they first tangled with a grizzly you know it was a it was a big struggle but they you know they liked the excitement but they document in their journals that they didn't care to see another grizzly for the rest of the trip after about their second or third just because of how ferocious and deadly they were and are they only on north america would they have known much about grizzlies before settlers started coming over to there isn't there i think there's a that's a good question i don't know that there's grizzlies outside of north america but there are uh like uh well they now classify grizzlies and brown bears as the as the same but isn't there a brown bear in in russia siberia area yeah i mean when i was growing up of course you'd read about cave bears you know yeah oh yeah mountain men and you mix the two up when you're 10 years old Hmm. but yeah there's there's some pretty ferocious animals in siberia bears um the mountain man hugh glass Mm -hmm. uh, they you'd read about him and he got mauled and left for dead by jim bridger and his buddies Mm -hmm. and that was in central eastern south dakota everybody thinks that was out in the mountains but it wasn't lewis and clark that you mentioned you get above Sioux City, just a little ways, and they camped on an island in the Missouri called White Bear Island. Hmm. And that's just right northwest Iowa. And uh, where Hugh Glass got mauled, that was about 70 miles from Sioux City. Hmm. Uh, that's all it was. And uh, 
Lewis and Clark, they count, they talk about White Bear Cliff. That's where on the banks of this Missouri, not too far from Sioux City, where the bears had dug holes into the cliff, and then they'd hibernate in there. All of the bears of, the grizzly bears of the Midwest, they had so much more food source meat than the the ones in the mountains that were I was with in Yellowstone. Yeah. Uh, so they didn't have to hibernate all winter. What, do you think they got bigger? Oh, yeah. They were bigger and more ferocious. Oof. They were after meat. I mean, um, a grizzly bear is an omnivore just like people are. Mm-hmm. And they can eat meat like humans can instinctively, but to eat from the plant community that makes them an omnivore, uh, that's something that's a learned behavior. Like grizzlies have to be at their mother's for two years to learn what to eat from all the plants. They'd be like humans. You eat the tree, you eat the bark, you eat the leaves, you eat the fruit. Well, what type of time of year do you mm. eat the fruit? And so that's what it was with grizzly bears. But the grizzlies in the Midwest, if it was kind of a tough blizzard time, they just gather up all the tall prairie grasses, you know, mostly down lower um, where you had a lot of the slough grass and all that. And they just make like a mountain, like an igloo. And they bury themselves in this middle of all this prairie grass that they'd mounded up. It got warmer, they'd come out. So they'd hibernate maybe two weeks, if you could call it that. That's what they did. Wow. Because they had so much more meat. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, they talk about all the wildlife in Yellowstone, which there are. But the amount of production of wildlife is directly dependent on the fertility of the soil. Mm. You get into something like Iowa, and you hear some of the historical accounts of, you know, the greatest prairie land of all. Yeah. You know, the most fertility, the, the prosperous land. And so the amount of wildlife here was so much. It'd be 10 times the amount of what it was in the mountains. That's fascinating. So we really missed out on all those historical accounts. But you can do it by inference, and that's what it was before. Yeah, so the grizzly bears... They would go after, uh, you know, where I was in Yellowstone, you always had to be concerned with the taller grass that was uh, near the boundaries uh, of the park because the people outside the park is 30-some miles from any road. And, you know, they got too many hunters in, so they didn't want to pack out all those animals right outside the park. So uh, the bears learned to get all the meat that was being left behind. And so I may have 10, 11 grizzly bears in a 10-mile stretch. Uh, They were pretty much camped out during the hunting season Mm. for the elk. And they would go in the park and lay down and, you know, like a human, they lay on a couch when they get a full meal. And uh, I had a good horse, and the tall grass, maybe it was waist high. If I'd been on foot, I would never have made it on patrol inside the park because uh, my horse had, could smell or tell when the grizzly bears were bedding down. And so they'd veer around each one of those spots. Really? But the tall grass, no people don't think of mountains and tall grass, but that's where the bears love to be. But the meat, the grizzlies in what is now Iowa, uh, they were ferocious. And the thing is, the tall grass of Iowa, like if you go seven miles south of here, past this little town of Seymour. People thought that was a buffalo wallow, and they showed me that. It's the whole top of a hill gone. Probably 20 acres is dropped down in. They ate all the 
mineral. It was a mineral lick for mm. the elk and the buffalo. And you can see the gullies, the draws coming up each side of that hill. And that's where all the big game came up to lick that mineral. They ate the whole top of the hill off. <laughs> that's how many animals were. But can you imagine what it was for an Indian that was waiting in that tall, big blue stem Indian grass, waiting beside that trail to shoot the elk or the buffalo coming in? At the same time, you had the grizzly bears there. That puts the people that were with grizzly bears in tall grass, it was so much more dangerous yeah. than where you could see further. Yeah, and people don't think about that in the prairie grass. Yeah. So, anyway, sense. yeah. When big blue stem can be six feet, seven feet, eight feet tall, you know, then, yeah, that sounds horrifying, honestly, yeah. like a jungle. Yeah. yeah, it was, I mean, everything you do out there in Yellowstone is you're on the watch for bears. But you can see, if you're within 20 feet of a grizzly bear and you surprise that bear, you got a 50% chance that that bear is coming at you. Mm -hmm. I've had my hair, my scalp move four times because of grizzly bears, and they're all going to make that woof, and <laughs> all at once, you know, your scalp moves. <laughs> I'm sure that's what they talk about. And I made it. I mean, four times, and they never did charge me. It was always night when you're waiting at a game trail for poachers to come out, and your horse is tied a quarter of a mile away. Because my horse went Winnie, but the poacher's horses might. So all at once, the grizzlies come along. Mm. So can you imagine what it was like in the tall grass prairie of Iowa? Unbelievable. The danger was so much more. They had to have a lot of Indians that got killed and mauled, everything like that. That is fascinating. So, yeah, no one we've ever talked to has talked about giant grizzlies being in the prairies of yeah, Iowa. Yeah, that's interesting. But, Very interesting. So many of those were over a thousand pounds. Oh I mean, the largest goodness. one ever recorded in Yellowstone was about nine hundred pounds, and that was one that would eat on the garbage dumps all the time. Mm. So uh, yeah, they were huge, and you know, they can knock a. There's a counts of where an Indian put an arm up, and the bear, the grizzly, took a swipe at him and took the arm and the head off with one blow. Man. Unbelievable. Yeah. First day I was in Yellowstone, they brought a camper in, and uh, it was a young guy, and they slept in the campground on top of their tent, just laid there because it was a warm summer night. And the grizzly bear took a swipe at him when he was trying to rush to get back to the vehicle. And the claws, which are long, anyway, with the pressure of that claw going through, it went all the way through the guy's thigh, came out the other side of it. Mm. So, yeah, it had to be spectacular. It was beautiful in Iowa, but there was adventure here, too. Yeah. Right? I yeah. mean, when you talk about prairie today, you talk about beauty or you talk about ecological benefit. But I think the first person we ever talked to on the podcast about it, it was actually quite a very hostile place, was Russ Benedict. And at the time, he was talking about insects and, and, and other things like that, you know, the thistles and things that would that just wouldn't have been fun. But, uh, yeah, the game that would have been here, you know, lurking for uh, for the creature of soft skin, basically, is what we are, you know, without without guns. We're just the creature with soft skin um, and, uh, and short claws. Oh, yeah. yeah no claws. <laughs> like, yeah. That weakling. My goodness. <laughs> Uh, but something you had mentioned that we want to get to, I think the two things we really want to catch you on are one, uh, Buffalo farming, 
but two, your Yellowstone Ranger time. Yeah, and and before we get there, so we we kind of jumped ahead here in in your personal history. So you grew up in north, kind of north central Iowa, and then uh, you ended up in Yellowstone. Was there college or something in between there that kind of set you on that path to going to Yellowstone, or was that just like after high school, I'm I want to head west type thing? Well, uh, as far as education, of course, my younger brother John and my older brother Bill, uh, all three of us went to graduated in fish and wildlife biology from Iowa State. Okay, that That's was awesome. a given. That was a given that we all knew we were going to sure. do that. Was that just your parents expected you to to go to Iowa State or? No, I mean, my first two years of college, I, I grew up a Baptist, and so your know, parents, they want to send you to a kind of a liberal arts, uh, church-oriented type school, so that was Bethel College and Seminary in Minneapolis, but then you go on to what your career is going to be mm-hmm. after you have that beginning, is what they thought as a Baptist, and it was an accredited school, so uh, but. My older brother went into academics, stayed at Iowa State. Um, my younger brother, John, he went into uh, business. And so he's done a lot better than the two of us were, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, in in Iowa. And then he owned Crystal Mines. Actually, though, the best prairie planting that I ever saw was what my younger brother, John, put in along our prairie creek up there in northern Iowa. Mm. It was right on US-169, and you go by that, and you see along this creek that's going to the east on our property, and all the flowers. And uh, we got some pictures of it, but John's never really talked that much. I mean, I started putting in prairie on that northern Iowa farm back in 1976. Our academics at Iowa State, luckily I had a, a professor there, Dr. Landers, and he was one of the first ones to really get into the academic parts a prairie uh, restoration and uh so that was i graduated from college in 1969 and we'd always as family gone north to minnesota and canada fishing so i'd never been west of the missouri river i took a government test at the post office and it uh i got high enough a score i guess and i could have worked either in the state of washington uh, oregon uh, or i could work in yellowstone and I looked on a map of Colorado, you know, John Denver, Rocky Mountain High, that type of stuff. <laughs> and so I'd never seen a mountain. Uh, my first day there, it was uh, July. And I was going across, you know, on Highway 20. And you get out by Casper and west of there, and you got all these alkali deposits on the ground. doesn't grow anything. It's whitish. Mm. And so I went to Matisse, Montana, or Wyoming. And uh, looked up to those Absaroka Mountains, which were, you know, east and south of Yellowstone Park. Mm-hmm. I was all excited. But here's this white stuff on top of the mountains. And I uh, talked to the old guy there that was putting gas in. Back in those days, they didn't put gas in for you. And he had a couple old guys there on benches in the shade. It was a hot day. So I said, you know those that white stuff on top of those mountains there? Is that alkali deposits or is that snow? And so he was real nice. He just said, no, that's snow. He could have gone over to those old guys and said, hey, let's ask Joe what it is. (laughs) So that was my first experience at Yellowstone. So, yeah, 
I uh, I took it all in, and uh, I worked pretty much year round until '82, and uh, ski patrol, everything like that, poacher patrol, and then they want to put you in an office. So we'd already started raising buffalo. My younger brother and my older brother had talked their dad into getting buffalo. We started with three back in 1976, I think it was. Hmm. Um, that was our start. So that way, Dad, I'm sure he said, thought, hey, you'll get the boys coming home, you know, to visit. So, uh, but Yellowstone, yeah, you learn when you're in the back country, and that's what I love to be. Five months a year, you could stay, and you'd headquarters 32 miles, you know, your patrol area. I had 100 miles of trail uh, that I had to clear and maintain, and you had the poachers in the fall. And How, uh, how long were, or how quickly were you expected to cover that 100 miles? I'd take 10-day trips. I had six, seven cabins wow. uh, that I'd patrol. that would be 12 to 16 miles apart. You'd go 100 miles. Hmm. And then you'd come back to your main cabin at Thoroughfare, which is the furthest point from a load road in the lower 48 states. So wow. uh, Prairie, you think of, I always kept the Iowa Prairie uh, to what we had out there. And you find when you're in the backcountry, and I'm sure the Indians did it, when you're roaming with your horse, because everything is by horse out there. They say I put more miles on a horse than anybody in the United States, but I'm no cowboy. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, back there, you just start uh, grabbing bits of vegetation, you know, because you need green in you. Mm -hmm. uh, you pull out young Timothy seed heads, and you get all that succulent green. You get elk thistles, just like the horses, and you just take your knife and you cut down through, and you get same thing as celery. You get all kinds of plants, which I'm sure the Indians traveling through Iowa, they just pick that stuff up, mm. pick it, you know, as you're moving. It isn't just eating in place. You're eating while you're moving, but you're eating part of the environment, mm -hmm. and that's what we don't think of. And so the edible landscape of the prairie, uh, that's something that I don't see anybody emphasizing Mm. Um, That's a good point. If, if you could do that, I think it would give them more life than just the beauty of it. Dad, yeah, maybe we point. should start selling backyard pollinator on the premise of you just go back there and eat it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Pur on it. Pur yeah. prairie salads. Yeah, yeah. 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 no, there's so much that you can get. Backyard yeah. salad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't remember your original question. I got off on a well, tangent. So, so you got you you went through college. You did your uh, your wildlife your background in wildlife and was it fisheries as well? Wildlife, yeah. fisheries and wildlife. It was called that. I don't know what it's called now. It's some kind of ecology. But back then, that was all the Earth Day start. Mm. And in Iowa State, uh, we had four hundred students. You know, from uh, freshman through uh, senior. That was a huge amount, and yeah. most of the people could get jobs working in sewer plants or something like that. I was really fortunate to, to get it in Yellowstone. I don't know yeah. how. It was just a luck of the draw, I guess. Or Didn't you say the, it was because you tested really high? I tested Your good enough in incredible my... Incredible intellect. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's... Mm -hmm. I mean, luck of the draw may be that you were born mm -hmm. that way. <laughs> well, yeah, the natural part was it all fit in. And I did find out in Yellowstone there was a lot of environmental uh, people getting careers in there. But none of them had the experience of hunting, fishing, trapping. Sure, I uh, that was something that I could bring in, and that's why 
in the end, I caught so many poachers. I caught more poachers than all the rangers combined mm. for 70 years. And uh, it was all just like the Western movies. It was rundowns on horses. Yeah, that's a, that's a dangerous, very dangerous job, right? I mean, it, you're kind oh, yeah. of, it's yeah. kind of almost like running into the sleeping grizzly bear. They got There's a 50% chance they say, well, we're the farthest you can possibly be in the lower 48 from a road right now. Yeah. And I have a loaded gun, and I yeah. see this ranger coming. and They all yeah, have guns, and they're all outfitters, and they all... They're living a Walter Mitty life. Most everybody down there, uh, right outside the park, the outfitters, the guides, and all that, uh, most of them, not that it's that bad, but most of them are barely high school education, the guides, and they're dreaming of the life. Hmm. And so everybody's got 44 revolvers on their hip. They all got rifles. Um, and they're thinking cowboys, western movies. Mm-hmm. And it's all artificial, but at the same time, yeah, you had to worry all the time. They threatened to kill you. They poisoned my horses a couple different times where they rode in at night mm. and uh, barely saved the one. They put porcupine quills in the mule roll spots and covered up with dirt for 25 years. Every time you came in after dark, you'd have to look with a flashlight um, to see if they'd put any porcupine quills in the roll spots wow. before you go to sleep. So, yeah, it was... a. Uh, Treacherous, um, dangerous. I still have deputy sheriffs from Jackson Hole call me up every four or five years on cold cases. If they wanted to kill somebody, is the best place. They take them back there supposedly to hunt. In the end of the season, ready to winter in, you're not going to find anything ever. Mm-hmm. All those years, I only found two grizzly bear carcasses, or bear carcass. One was a black bear, one was a grizzly. There's six, seven hundred bears, but how many do you actually see? Mm. Once you've had a winter there, you're not going to find it. So it was a great place to kill people. Mm. So, yeah, that's what I was in. Yeah, and I was catching poachers. No one else had caught poachers. One case since 1938. That's all it was before me. But the environment, you had to live with the environment. And mm-hmm. whether it was Iowa, I think to Iowa. I would have loved to have been in Iowa in the 1600s, 1400s, 1200s. It had to be one hell of a life here. Mm. I mean, adventure you talk about. Yeah, this would have had it. I mean, you had the lions, you had the grizzly bears, you know. The the one place you can go in Iowa and get a little taste of what, or at least the one place that I know of. New York City? No. It's crazy up there. What uh, Bob's talking about there is uh, up in Harper's Ferry, Iowa, where they have the – effigy mounds national monument that was a really ancient people that was living up there and building those mounds and and just a very you know as far as having what they needed rich group of people because there were so many natural resources on the landscape yeah all that uh the hopi or the what, what was that culture i'm trying to think of what it was called but anyways the mound builders mm-hmm. you know down on the mississippi and then up into there. And, of course, I love the Indian stuff in Yellowstone. And, of course, I started with along Prairie Creek in Iowa. But Yellowstone, you got those game trails that have been there six, eight, ten thousand years. Hmm. And any time you have a cliff with a game trail below it, you got all kinds of projectiles below that. You can look hmm. to see where the Indians were. I'd follow all the oh, Indian that's camps. You'd follow their camps and see where they go from place to place. Wow. And you lived it. I found more campsites. I found more campsites in Yellowstone, over 200, that were more than they'd have accounted for 
put all the park. So you're you're doing this hundreds of years after they are actually having the campsites there. But, but you can still see where the camps were. I camp in their huh. places when I stake out. Yeah, I was gonna say I've I've heard somebody reference that before. Is uh, you'll you know you'll come across like a rock outcropping or something. You know, a little cliff hanging over. If you look up, you'll see it's blackened with thousands of years of campfire smoke from people who also saw hey you know what that'd be a good spot to that'd be a good spot to camp out for the night some of those places uh in my country in the late lower thoroughfare there um it's never had a white man in it before hmm. it was uh except for the poachers going through and they were scared to go into the smaller drainages because uh, of the grizzly bears so i didn't have to worry about poachers in there but uh some of those areas I go in. You find chipping piles hmm. that are three, four foot high. They've never been disturbed. You find wow. uh, wickiups that are grown into white bark pine uh, that were three feet off of the ground where it's grown in. White bark pine can live five hundred years. Wow. And so you would find all this stuff that was there that no one's ever seen before. That's I'd fascinating. It. The caves that you go into, yeah, the smoke. They a lot of those caves were up on the cliffs, and they mounded up everything in front of them to protect them so the people down below the indians couldn't see the other indians in the caves mm. up there so the caves were the great place probably the best thing i ever well now we're on the prairie a lot of stories on that stuff no, but, you, no you're, keep you're keep going with it it's yeah, fascinating yeah. stuff it's part of what paints the landscape the best i ever saw you see where the big horn sheep would go along this real narrow cliff that was probably about 100 feet straight down to the you know, the meadows below, and then 300 feet straight above that. It was a place where the northwest section of the park where you have uh, trees in the volcanic, redwood trees, sequoias from a million years ago. Uh, and so it would leave caves up there. And I could see where big horn sheep, this this ledge was probably a half mile long, and then this big horn sheep would be scraping at the real soft rock. And they were licking it. So there was mineral there they were getting. So I tied my horse below. And you can't go where a bighorn sheep can go. <laughs> but you can go where an elk went. And I saw an elk track going out there. And so I thought, okay, if an elk can go, I can go. And so you're, 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 some of the areas you had to just kind of like put your arms out and just shuffle along because it was such a narrow area. Other areas would open up maybe 70 feet, and all these had caves in behind, and it was like stalactites. You know, your redwoods and your sequoias would be coming through the roof of the cave and going down through the bottom of it. And all at once, I came to a narrow area, and all these rocks, maybe about a foot in diameter or less, they're all built up in front of this with a little opening, maybe a foot wide. And this was a small, probably a cave that had a three foot high at the most and so i thought okay we had and there's grass growing in these rocks hmm. so we'd been there a long 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 time so i shuffled along got into the bigger area and there's another entrance so i crawled in you always carried your flashlight just for looking in caves yeah and so i crawled in there and here it was right next to the entrance but back in there here was a spear but it didn't have a projectile on it. It was just pointed, about seven feet long. Wow. And what the Indians would do, you see, whether it was an elk or mostly a bighorn sheep, all they had to do is just stab 
at that sheep, and it would go over the edge. Mm. So it would be the same as a buffalo jump. You retrieve sure, your yeah. meat. Yeah. So I took an archaeologist up there and re-recorded it. And since then, this, the hill is sloughed off. You can't get to it. So oh. it's preserved. But I did always, like, I'd always put a penny or a nickel or a dime on a ledge in all these caves. So maybe 500 years from now. They'll see it. I put it at a place where the pack rats can get to it. So <laughs> that was your adventure. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, that's incredible. What? So, so help me understand this. You followed these trails. You kind of helped keep these the trails, game trails. The game trails. Well, we had regular park service trails that you maintain mm-hmm. yep. for and the backpacker. Very few backpackers would go that far back. It was all horse country. Okay. And then on top of the 100 miles of the, the park trails, you had hundreds of miles of hundreds of miles of game trails have been there for thousands of years within 18 inches they were the same spot wow you can can find all these cliffs and then you can find little where they build up most of the stuff that they shot or speared back there wasn't any more than three four feet from them wow that was it they'd just be beyond the edge of a cliff and then they just poke that spear out and get them that's that's cool and so, so it's all there. So it's still all there. You were following these game trails primarily looking for poachers. Well, you did both. You had to do in the summertime. Uh, you would be scoping out, staking out area, or finding areas that you knew poaching would be going on. And most all of it was uh, bighorn. I mean, was elk. Uh, I did have buffalo in some of my area, um, but most of it was elk hunting in the fall. So. Summertime, you'd find these stakeout places that you would, um, you know, stake out for maybe up to 10 days. Even though we had cabins, uh, some of that high country, you had to stake out. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was always dangerous, dangerous, because whenever you're staking out away from trails, that's where those boar grizzly bears live. Ooh. And they hate to have anything intruding on them. Yeah. So in the middle of the night, they come around that tent and just huff, huff, huff. You always build up a whole bunch of brush in front and on the sides. and keeps the bear away from ripping into that tent where you are. Did you yeah. ever have a face-to-face with grizzly bears? Oh, yeah. What'd you do? Your hair stood on end. <laughs> your scalp moved. I so mean, you, you didn't you, know your hair, but I'm sure that's what your scalp moved. But you just helped? You no, just no. Helped what what I do is if it was daytime and you're on a horse, if you had a good horse, uh, it would stand its ground. Um and the bear charge, and when a grizzly a sow charges you, and it's got cubs, you know, when you're doing next to raging water, they can't hear you. And so all at once they're coming at you, and the only mm. thing that's visible that's not a blur is their mouth is open, and it's it's open, and you can see their eyes. Everything else is a blur. It's like a Roadrunner cartoon. Wow. You don't have time to get up a tree. You don't have to do anything. You're mm. trying to reach for a gun, and they're turning like a Roadrunner with the dust. Going the other way. That's what face-to-face is. Hmm. That's what people don't realize. An animal that's going back and forth, maybe it's going to charge you, maybe it's not. You know, it's still dangerous, but it's nothing like a flat-out charge. You know, yeah. it's nothing Man. like that. So, so when yeah. they were charging, what did you, what did you do? You You're trying to reach for a gun. You got a forty-four, and you don't have time. Maybe if a bear got right to the horse, if you're on a horse, then boom, you might have got a shot. But usually within 10 feet of you, you know, they're charging from 30, 40 yards away, and they're getting about 10 feet, and then they're spinning the other way. Without a horse, I would have been dead. So why are, why are they turning around last second? It's because they're going back to the cubs. Oh, okay. That's what they're doing. If it's a boar up in the backcountry, I mean, a stakeout, 
you're always with your 44 and you got a, a you know a lever action rifle i was the only one in the park in the department interior that was allowed to carry a lever action because i was on a horse all the time hmm. but you can't when you're laying there and a grizzly is on circling your tent you know five feet from you hmm. you know you can't you can't keep following that bear with a rifle right you can't turn it quick enough you know on your chest so you got to take your 44 and you're moving the 44 hmm. it's all like that every night did you ever watch the reverend with Leonardo i did Tyler? once i have a hard time but that's what they're supposed to use for the movie they're making of me i guess they're trying to get him to be really? the be the actor so but i wasn't we'll sure if we were allowed to bring that up but they yeah. are they're trying to make a movie out of you and i guess they're already into the like money raising phase yeah they are yeah mm -hmm. and they want me to help doing that too but we'll see what happens Why don't, they should just so many of these the proposals action, right? so many proposals they don't get happen and i said i'm 75 years old you better get it before 10 years if you're going to do it <laughs> yeah. i think they should just have you do the acting part put you out on the horse <laughs> well <laughs> like they do with those other movies uh like the the right stuff with uh, chuck yeager uh, they put him in as a little cameo somewhere. Okay, yeah. So maybe they'll have me behind a bar or something. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> if well, I'm still alive. I know er earlier you were making fun of me for being sheltered because I, I guess I haven't seen all the movies you've seen, but if, if, if this one comes to fruition, I promise I will watch it. It sounds... Yeah, I just hope that they... Uh, I send them all the pictures. I give all the accounts. I don't know. I think it'd be a great Coen Brothers movie because there's no heroes back there. Everybody back there, where there's game wardens, most all the park rangers, forest service, the outfitters, the guides, it's all a make-believe land. Hmm. Um, they're trying to replicate something, and that's more important to them than doing the job. Hmm. To have only one, we have the log books in Thoroughfare, the ranger station. And from 1938 to when I came in there in the early 70s, had one case approaching when i started in there you can go a quarter mile without seeing all the bleached elk bones mm. you know uh right on next to the park line yeah. and further in because it was more important to ride horses talk horses live the life of horses mm. and so that took in fact one of the good rangers he said when i was catching all the poachers he said we're not much different than them. We all ride horses. And I hope that's what the name of the movie is. We all ride horses. Because mm. that was so important to everybody, just to ride the horses. You know, talking all the sorrels, the dapple grays, all that stuff. Uh, it's a tool. And my horses saved my life so many times. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you got a job to do. You know, mm -hmm. and that's to protect Yellowstone. In Iowa, what I'd like to promote, you get the history of what this place was. Pre-white men. You see the fertility. You see what was here. You got all the prairie that was here. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. You know, you can imagine those buffalo family groups and all those sedge bottoms eating that. And, of course, you think if you had a dry year, where do they get water? You know, they can eat snow. But you got it. That was a huge limiting factor. It was mm -hmm. where you could get water. If it's all frozen over, where do you get it? Sedge bottoms and cattails. 
that kind of stuff, you can bust through and not drown. So that was so important for whether it's elk or buffalo. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, um, the prairie, it holds so much more moisture than your cool season grasses. You guys probably know that. Oh, yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, where we planted prairie, and then you're putting in corner posts in that. And 25 feet from the prairie plantings, you got like your brome grass, you got your orchard grass. It's powder dry when you're digging a pole still. Mm-hmm. You go in 30 yards in the prairie and it's all like mud on the auger. Mm. So all that moisture goes down through those leaves and goes down into the soil. And so yeah. what we think of now is dry climate with the prairie, you know, it held so much more water. Yeah. And people don't understand some of those things that was here before. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a and very you, interesting point, yeah. but yeah, when I think about it, I've I've seen similar, you know. I but last summer we had to uh, clear out some uh not some, <laughs> quite a bit of big blue stem from our Sidoats Grama uh production field and it could be the driest part of the summer, but you dig down in there that soil was wet. It wasn't you weren't digging dry dirt, you know, whereas if like you said, if that had been in a Kentucky blue or brome or reed canary or something like that, you you would have hit you would have hit dry dirt right yeah, away. That's, powder that's all a, the that's way down. That's a great point. Yeah. So I was gonna move on with to the, the buffalo. Or well, I wanted to I wanted to hear if you're willing to talk about it. So I read a stack of papers about you. Some were interviews, some were pamphlets, some were. Uh, different things but one of them that you had like you give out publicly is your termination letter yeah. from are, are you okay to talk about that sure so they tried to terminate me probably four or five times through the years from from the being a ranger in yellowstone well i wasn't a horsey type i mean a lot of the rangers would you know we'd have pre-hunt meetings with the game wardens and the forest service and um all that stuff in yellowstone pre-hunt you know the fall and everybody would go down to the crells and put a foot on the railing and look at all the horses and talk horses. And I never was a part of that. So even though I was in the prime horse position, ranger position of all, I never was a part of that. So I guess for me, um, I don't know. Ask the question again. I got no, to no, think. No, you're good. So. You were saying, we were talking about you being terminated, but you were saying just from the get-go, you didn't necessarily fit in with the culture of all the other rangers there. No. For one, it caused a lot of problems when I caught poachers. All the rangers before, they'd ride into thoroughfare, you know, the most mecca backcountry place in Yellowstone, you know, the place where it was for hundreds of years. Uh, And they go to all the outfitter camps. They'd eat hot cherry pie. They'd all talk horses, and they all had their chaps on. And so if you start catching those outfitters, you can't go to their camps anymore. You go to the camps just to tell them where the boundary is. You still, that's part of your duties. Um, So all at once, I started catching poachers, and some of the people that were there already, rangers, they didn't want to have to to go after poachers they wanted to go to the outfitter camps and so and then as the culture changed in yellowstone when the first decade i was there there's a lot of ski patrol into the backcountry cabins 10-day trips where you're skiing uh shoveling the roofs all that's from the culture from way before 
Um, it changed to where it was all law enforcement. Instead of having a biology background to be a ranger, you could just do law enforcement training. So you got guys who were wanting to use tasers. You had rangers coming in the backcountry that had bulletproof vests on. And I tell them, you know, get that stuff off. Get the duty belt off. It's just going to catch ropes on it, and you're going to be in danger, you know, falling off your horse or whatever. And I said, they all have high-powered rifles, you know. Yeah, bulletproof vest isn't going to stop them. And then some would say, well, I got a steel plate. Well, you get a Winchester mag coming in, you know, it may stop it, but your heart's dead. So, but they couldn't take the bulletproof vest off. They couldn't take the duty belt off because that's where they felt naked without it. So the culture changed. I had to keep going because I knew how to do it. And so the park would use me. Uh, they advertised me in all the any of the mountain newspapers, they'd say, you know, Jackson caught another poacher. But what they do, I found out, is then they'd go to Congress and say, we got poaching going on in Yellowstone. Uh, thanks, John. That's my brother. He's getting me some more pop here so I can not have a hoarse voice. Mm -hmm. um, one time, I guess they got $300,000. Another time, $500,000. So they'd use those papers, articles, to say we got poaching. But... Then it would always go to something else. I mean, one time we got a wood cook stove that they brought in. That's about it, you know. There nothing was. They never had me doing training sessions with people. Um, they just used that money for uh, soft money. So, but then uh, I kept seeing things that were going on back there, like they do all the illegal salting. They instead of twelve to seventeen hunters in a seven-week period of time. Outfitter camps started getting 85, 95 hunters. And instead of the limit for service of 60 horses per camp, some of those camps are getting up to 200 horses. Mm. Wow. And so they were huge, huge. They were grazing everything out. Why were they doing that? Just because they could sell the the, the... They could sell the hunts. That... Yeah. Well, it, the outfitters changed from where it used to be a rancher, had horses, and they had some time in the fall. Then they'd have an outfitter camp right outside the line with the Forest Service. And so they could use their horses. They enjoyed the hunt, maybe 12 to 17 hunters. Uh, and they'd be 10-day hunts. You know, two days getting in, two days getting out, layover camp. And then when they got done, if they got their elk, then they'd take them to Bridger Lake and go fishing for trout. Well, it got down to six day. The people would be uh, buying the camps wanting to make a lot of money. Seven-week period of time. $5,000 per hunter, they can make $550,000, $500,000 gross. Mm. Wow. So with that many hunters coming in, the camps were five miles apart. So you had to draw the elk out of Yellowstone, or you had to go in and poach. Um, one guy I caught, uh, well, it was the guys that went in, that dentist uh, from Florida had offered him $10,000 to get a big elk rack for him. Mm. So... Anyway, 85, 95 hunters, they'd get an elk, and they'd say, hey, it's more fun if you go to the Cowboy Bar in Jackson or you go to the Irma and Cody. And so they tried to get them out of there because they didn't want to feed them. So you had all these huge amounts of illegal horses. There was no law anymore in the Forest Service wilderness areas. They had no more camp guards or wilderness guards. They just had volunteers 
watching back there. I was the only law back there, and so it got really, really dangerous because I was taking care of everything. And anytime you got a hunter or a guy who got bucked off a horse, broken ribs, you know, head injuries, they'd have to come to me. Mm-hmm. Middle of the night, you hear these pounding hooves coming to the cabin. They may be 10, 15 miles away, but they mm-hmm. had a hunter that was in bad shape. There's no Forest Service people around. They'd come to me. I'd hear that thing. You'd always leave the window open a little bit. The bells on the horse and the mule would be clanging, you know, mine. Mm-hmm. And they knew what was happening. So then you're running in the middle of the night, you know, on those trails, trying to get to that guy because I had the only radio reception. And you may have to climb a tree or go up the mountainside to get reception. And these guys would be burnt, anything there. And then I'd have to show that it was a legitimate case because some of those guys didn't want to have to travel out 32 miles in one day because mm-hmm. they got rid of the layover camps. Next day after they get in there, they put them in a galvanized tub, warm water, because they couldn't even get on a horse again. So mm-hmm. the, the outfitting became such a commercial thing. And so they had to do a lot more salting to bring the elk out. Some of those outfitters were packing in over 2,000 pounds of salt for every fall hunt. That's how bad. And so the grizzlies were becoming habituated. And so like the one fall, we had four guides mauled and hunters Mm. and eight grizzly bears killed. Anytime you got eight grizzly bears killed because they're charging, you probably got twice that many. So I'd start writing reports. Forest Service didn't like it. Park Service didn't like it. Because they're losing money because they're needing to make changes, basically. Yeah, they they would have had to address. The Forest Service would have had to address. And the Park Service, they would have had to start giving some actual patrol. And they glorified me. But in the end, because I cared about the Grizzlies, and then all at once they were starting. There was always a stress of... Uh, you know, everybody wanted to do what I did. You'd have rangers that, you know, they'd be in an office in Mammoth, and they'd have a picture of them on top of a mountain with a pack string of three. And that'd be underneath that one side of the office desk with glass, and here's their photo. And then on the other side, it's all their paperwork. That may have been from 20 years mm. previous. I was doing it. That's what they wanted to do to begin with, but... They chose a life of climbing the GS. But I had the farm in Iowa. You know, we started that in 82. And Buffalo going, could take care of themselves. You were so, going back and forth, right? Yeah, you yeah. at Yellowstone all year round. Well, no. When were you there? Um, starting in 82, I was, uh, we had our Buffalo started in 76 on our family farm in northern Iowa. Um, then in 82, we bought the first 100 acres. My dad, we had 19 then, and he said, you know, we got about five feet of black dirt up here, and all you need is about a foot and a half to have good grazing. So he helped us get the first 100 acres down here. Uh, I found out it's pretty hard to get a foot and a half of black dirt down here. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's how we started. Uh, so I had I had the advantage of having another profession, too. So whatever they could try to do, terminate me. One time we had Tom Brokaw come in. Uh, and his wife, Meredith, and they wanted to go to Thoroughfare. And all the big wigs want to take somebody like that in. They don't want a regular ranger there. Uh, you know, they bring all the pack horses of all the wine, all the fine food. You have crawler operations bringing in. And they put Tom on a, a big old black horse that was the roughest riding of all. <laughs> he had to go 17 miles from the from the shore of the lake. 
they couldn't get in because of a big blowdown with all his medicine. He came in, and I had to stay in because of all the blowdown. I mean, you could do four chainsaw tanks of fuel uh, in a mile. That's how much they call them microbursts. So he couldn't even get up off of the <coughs> saddle. And they wanted to take him around the next day riding around. He couldn't even get on a horse, but they had it all planned out. So that trip was a bust. I was supposed to be out the next day, and then Meredith said, uh, can Bob stay in here? <laughs> so I was the only one who knew what was going on. And so I took him fishing the next day and the next day. But because that was a bad trip, then they tried to scape, scapegoat me as the one that caused their problems. Who were and people? that was the one that you see were the termination papers. Yeah, where I could keep my government axe and my shovel. That was a joke. That was a fun thing. But anyway, yeah. uh, they tried to do that stuff a fair amount. Yeah. The Yellowstone yeah. would. And it was all because was had his outfitter buddies out of Jackson Hole, and I was catching them poaching. And he wanted me out of Yellowstone. So after two years, yeah, I won big time. Um, you won big time. Yeah, <laughs> well, I could have got a couple million dollars. They, they tapped my government phones. They opened up all my mail, including from boxes, uh, care packages from Tom Brokaw. They... Uh, here in southern Iowa, underneath the guise of secrecy, you know, top secret clearance or whatever, they tried to bring up all the dirt on me, anything like that. Yeah, one night I came out of the back Our country. government? That is crazy. Yeah, I was like, I was a terrorist. <laughs> all I was doing was doing my job. But I did have something to go to. Uh, too many of the park rangers that had really good ethics, uh, they had to capitulate. What else were they going to do? And so, and I told the guys that were friends, I said, don't try to help me. I can take care of this. In the end, town, uh, Senator Grassley asked if he could help. And that's what uh, it helped in the end. Because then all the the jury rigged, you know, performance evaluations that they tried to put on me and my personnel file, um, Office of Special Counsel, they came in. And usually it's five years before you get... Uh, um, your case in the government actually looked at. There's so much of a backlog. Grassley had him put it to number one. Hmm. Wow. And so Chuck Grassley himself. Yeah, goodness. even though he's Republican. How yeah. did you how did you hear how did he hear about that? It was all in all the papers. Oh, the morning man. register, everything was in there. That must have been it a... started in LA Times, syndicated paper. Oh, yeah. that's, that's quite a guy to step in for. What year was this that they were, or years I guess they were doing this? I think it started in two thousand. And, um, I don't know, I'd written reports on grizzly bears and their mortalities, which were all okayed uh, before they ever were published. But somebody leaked it to the Jacksonville News, I think one of the Forest Service people. Hmm. And so that started it. And L.A. Times wanted to get involved. And then the park and the Forest Service tried to keep their writer from coming in. Um, they made the guy in October with ice on the streams, they wouldn't even let him camp overnight in the wilderness area. Hmm. Um, so they came in. but uh, So the story started coming out. It went to Europe, went all over. Um, reporters were all for me. They knew it was you know, a jury-rigged thing. So I, I did public affairs. When it was all over, <laughs> took the hatchet to everybody that he thought was going to try to get me. Head of public affairs, I'd take early retirement. It was so important. Uh, they had a 
public affairs was an important post. Uh, my supervisor was demoted. Um, the chief, assistant chief ranger who was in charge of the investigation against me, who I'd known for 20 years, uh, she's just building her and her husband a new house in Bozeman. They made her take a transfer to the Department of Agriculture in Washington. They didn't even get their house done. Um, so he took the hatchet on a number of people because mm. wow. they didn't get me. So it was pretty important. They flew me to Washington, D.C. when it was all uh, coming to a close. Yeah. When did they finally, how'd they finally get you? How'd they finally you know, make it official to get you out of there? They didn't. They kept trying to get me out. There was a nonprofit by the name of Peer, Public Employees Environmental Responsibility. They heard about what was happening in Yellowstone, and so they asked if they could, uh, you know, represent me. And that was in two years' worth where the park tried to keep me out, and they kept going, so I'd have to go back. You know, they couldn't keep me out because they goofed up so many times. They'd, yeah. they'd falsify so many things that was so easy to say, like that termination paper. Yeah. It only yeah. took me 10 minutes. They had five trumped-up charges after the Tom Brokaw trip. Yeah. Where, you know, I looked so, at it, and I told them, because they brought me out of the backcountry. I says, uh, any other charges? Nope. And I thought, boy, this is going to be easy. <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah. when did you finally, so you left then of your own volition. You were never officially terminated. No, no. I, uh, in the end, you see, none of these people that made up the false uh, reports on me or anything, they would have had to go under oath. No one wanted to go to prison. Mm. Yeah. So that they had to capitulate. And in the end, they had to change it from, um, um, I know we're not talking prairie, but anyway, we can, you can use it however you want. Mm. Um, they had to take everything negative out of my personnel file and put in the superintendent, had to put in a, a letter of accommodation of how great I was. <laughs> so that's how I did it. <laughs> so what year did you, what was your last year leaving Yellowstone? As 2003. A, um, once you get to 57, you can't legally shoot bad guys anymore in the federal government. Ah. They changed that within a year or two after that. But I was that age, and so my last year in Yellowstone was 2003. But that was because. Wow. 20 years you, ago. Yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't do anymore after that. It keeps coming up. You know, my employment, people want to write scripts. Um on me they want to write books and then you find out that you can't use any of the materials after that so now they're wanting to do a movie we'll see what happens um yeah cowboys and indians want me to write little one page uh tips on horses yeah. and stuff and i haven't had time to do that either so nice. i appreciate anybody doing a podcast or helping oh yeah any of this stuff so mm. i appreciate you guys you guys are really really important mm. for what's there you know the reporters um Whenever they wanted to talk to me, if I was out of the backcountry, then Pierre, they would have to go to Pierre, that's in Washington, D.C. Pierre would get a hold of me, and every every interview had to be at a pay phone. Mm. Uh, wow. You couldn't do it from any of your government, uh, you know, or your home, you know, your front country residence, because uh, everything was taped. One night I came out of the backcountry, I didn't really used to come out at all. All at once, they want me to come out every two weeks, you know. And so why, why? Because it takes two days ride to get in there, two days out. You're packing one day. You're lucky to be in there six out of 14 days. Well, they thought somebody else was coordinating this whole, you know, thing that was making them look bad. 
And so I called my daughter up at Arizona State University. She says, is somebody on the phone with, you know, cause like a party line? Is the old style phones were in Yellowstone? And I said, no, no. Well, as soon as I hung up, about 20 seconds later, I get a ring. This guy in a gruff voice says, you Bob Jackson? I says, yeah. He said, your phone is tapped. Click. He knew he had 25, 30 seconds before it would come on for the tape, tape and yeah. So that's anyway, wild. yeah, that was awful. They, 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 they looked three times into my government residence. They looked through all the dressers and everything. Finally, the third time, I mean, I, uh, I put little notes in there saying, "Oh, pretty warm. You might try over this drawer." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to have some oh, humor funny. with it. You yeah, should have, you should have saved some of those porcupine quills that the poachers left for you. <laughs> put those yeah. in your sock drawer. Yeah, the first time that happened with my mule, he came up with those quills. I mean, you know what a porcupine quill does, right? If it's in there, it okay. keeps digging in, digging in, because they got those barbs like a fish hook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they can kill. They can oh, kill yeah. a mule. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> Okay, first of all, if you keep telling us too much, we're just all going to go up missing one day. We're going to know too much. We're going to go up missing. Um, We really want to transition to uh, your buffalo here because you have really cool things to say about it. But I have got to use the bathroom. Can we put a pause? 